threading the needle here between a good orderly transition that makes the transition that is Paris aligned and fast enough, but lifts people out of energy poverty, fuels economies to continue with economic growth, rather than being an awkward step change that breaks economies on the route to trying to solve the climate challenge. Welcome to the Energy Current podcast brought to you by management consulting firm Oliver Wyman. This episode is hosted by Christian Elderman, partner and global head of Oliver Wyman's wealth and asset management practice. Christian is joined by David Knipe, partner in the energy practice, leading the efforts in climate sustainability, and is also joined by James Davis, partner of financial services and head of sustainable finance Europe at Oliver Wyman. This episode will share the findings from a report Oliver Wyman launched in collaboration with CDP Europe. The report looks at the progress made by companies in reducing emissions and their transition plans to net zero. Thank you for joining and we hope you enjoy the show. I'm delighted to get us going. We looked at roughly a thousand of the largest corporates in Europe. They make up about 80% of the market cap. And we find some remarkable progress in terms of reducing emissions and launching transition plans but there are still large gaps to the Paris goals. And at the same time, when we looked at the financial institutions, many of them have a significant journey ahead of them. I will kick us off with a couple of questions. James, the report highlights significant 4 trillion of financing mismatch between what the banks say they want to be Paris aligned and what they actually have in their balance sheets at the moment. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, thanks, Christian. This is a really big and interesting finding from the paper and, and a huge opportunity for both the companies and the financial services sector. What does this €4 trillion euro mismatch mean? What we did on the paper was look at the lending commitments of banks in Europe. 95% of those banks today have made a broad pledge to be Paris aligned. And practically speaking, what that means is that the emissions of the companies that they're financing leads to something like half in the next 10 years, which is a huge shift. So banks are looking for ways to do that. And how are they going to do that? Directing financing towards companies who are making progress towards the transition. And that should help the companies themselves and create a kind of virtuous cycle where those who are making progress find it easier to raise capital on better terms. Where it could become difficult, of course, is if companies don't start to accelerate fast enough. We painted a few scenarios in the report around what 2030 could look like around how much acceleration do we actually see amongst the corporate sector and what might that mean for banks and other financial institutions in terms of how much they need to proactively start directing capital towards companies that are moving further and faster. Thank you. James, you talked about the banks, but we also looked at the corporates, of course. Talk a little bit what their levers are to actually reducing emissions. Well, there were some really impressive stories in the paper this year. The top quarter of companies reduced emissions by 15% on average in one year, which is a huge move. And if the whole of corporate Europe were to move at that pace, then we'd be well on track for the Paris goals. The challenge right now is this progress is really uneven. If you look at a carbon intensity, which is a really simple metric looking at carbon emissions per unit revenue, there are massive differences between the top and the bottom. It's something like half as carbon intensive at the bottom half quarter of the distribution versus the top. So huge differences in where companies are today. And of course, that just reflects a history of choices that have been made around business model, around operations and strategy. And changing all of that is a massive undertaking for a corporate to pull off. One thing that we debated a lot in the paper was working with some of our colleagues who deal with the corporates around what that feels like. I thought perhaps David could add some perspective on what that felt like. 
Yeah, happy to do that, James. 2050 probably sounds like a long way off for those expecting some kind of immediate action to deliver this, right to be impatient. But I guess what I observed is just how interconnected energy systems, in particular hydrocarbon energy systems, are into global economies. So they permeate every facet of industry and economic growth in all regions around the world. Taking that plumbing out and replacing it is no simple task. And renewables alone isn't going to solve that. And, and you know, switching to electric vehicle alone is only a small part of that challenge. Trillions of dollars needs to be spent. New technologies need to be innovated and delivered at world scale to enable that to happen. So again, great to see a company like BP being out there on the front of wanting to do this, but it's going to take a lot of hard yards to get there and to get there quickly enough to deliver against Paris. James, what exactly are we talking about? Is it net emissions? What are we looking at? How the report look at the question of carbon offsetting versus the net targets and so forth? So we looked at a few different measures. We looked at some of the statistics in the paper, look at scope one and two emissions and how those have actually moved. When I talked about those companies who've made the most progress, that was based on scope one and two. And that means your direct emissions. So if you're a factory, what you actually emit on your own premises and in your own operations. And scope two is then also bought in energy, buying energy from renewable sources or other sources. And that's because those are the things that you can measure most directly. And we'll talk a bit more about scope three later on, but scope three is really important. Those are the indirect emissions. So if you're making cars, it's the emissions of the people who are using those cars that are important, as well as just the emissions that are made in the production of those cars. And that's a murkier world. And so we were less able to draw on that for those metrics. Some of the other stats we talked about use the CDP score, which is a comprehensive metric, looks at all the different components and is also forward-looking. And so based on the stated emissions reductions profiles of companies and how they compare to the pathways. And then the third statistic we looked at was emissions intensity, which is just a, a simple measure of carbon emissions per unit of revenue. And there's many other ways you can think about intensity. You can think about that as a ratio of economic output, for instance, carbon per kilowatt hour, but for simplicity of comparison, of course, set as we just looked at a, a carbon intensity revenue metric. Excellent. And David, energy companies are obviously among some other type of corporates at the heart of this. How does collaboration work in the energy sector? Well, I think this is one of the most super exciting bits of all of this. You can look at the four trillion thing as a problem or as an opportunity. And I think leading companies are looking at this space now and saying, you know, energy permeates every aspect of what we do and connects into various industries. That includes mobility. So you start to see OEMs collaborating with oil and gas players or with utility companies, with technologists like Uber and Didi, ride hail firms that are setting up, creating just new industries, new ways of transporting people and goods around. Or take the aerospace industry, you start to see the likes of Neste developing biofuels to be used in modern aircraft that Airbus is designing to fuel engines. Rolls-Royce and GE are innovating to work on low or no carbon fuels. So there are all sorts of new avenues evolving, new ecosystems developing. And I would just encourage our companies and our clients to get more engaged in those ecosystems because they are going to be the avenues for future economic development. Do we have any data on how Europe is doing versus the US, Japan, China, and the like? And if we don't, David, from your experiences in the industry, how does Europe stack up versus other geographies? There are various differences going on. If you take, for example, Australia and Japan, Australia used to be a big LNG or liquefied natural gas exporter to the Japanese. Uh, they're now pioneering the development of green hydrogen, given the abundant renewable resources they've got. Similarly, in Brazil, that is a potentially advantaged part of the world for the production of 
cheap renewable power, again, another source of hydrogen, which is the backbone in the future for industrial energy supply. China has been the leader in the development of solar PV and bringing that down the cost curve, deploying it at massive scale. You only have to look at what they're doing in things like ride hail, again, with the likes of Didi to be just in awe of what China is doing on this agenda. Different parts of the world are using their natural advantages or investing into technologies that are going to be able to help us to solve this energy transition. James, going back to you on the banks and asset managers supporting transitions, how can they be most effective on both supporting the transition and turning this into a commercial opportunity for themselves? There's a huge amount that can be done. At the base level is just engaging with customers. I think corporations who are trying to navigate this space is a slightly confusing array of different measures and metrics and green labeled bonds and other forms of financing. And there's a role for financial institutions to play in engaging with clients and making it clear what's expected from investors and also helping them think through how they can navigate that space and draw on best practices from others. There's also a massive role to be played in mobilizing capital. There's a huge amount of infrastructure that needs to be financed and big changes that need to be driven through the corporate sector on the one hand. And on the other hand, there's also this growing evidence that lots of asset owners and investors are keen to have values reflected in their investments as well. If you think about what the role of a bank or an asset manager is at the most fundamental level, it's looking after someone else's money and putting it to work for them. And people are increasingly making clear through the growth of ESG investing and other sort of trends you can see that people want not just an economic return, but they want their money to be put to good use as well. And so there's an opportunity for financial services firms to show that they can do that, to show that they can reflect both commercial considerations, but also environmental and other ESG type considerations and how they make decisions and thus justify their role as custodians of other people's money. There's also huge growth opportunities for them. And lots of the things that need financing are quite high risk, high return. David was talking about hydrogen. There's loads of other big, potentially game-changing technologies out there that are uncertain at this point in time. And then the nature of the capital that needs to be put to work to support those and to drive the change is perhaps in a complex. There'll be a range of different sources. There might be government money, development bank money. There might be private equity and venture type money, pension fund money, and bank balance sheet as well. And there's a role for pulling all of that together and helping channel it towards the corporations and consortia who'll be driving that change. Christian, if I can just build on that, one of my observations is this is a very challenging path for executives to walk. You, you both have to deliver the in-quarter returns and cash and performance expectations of investors. And now you have to also make this multi-year journey to transform your businesses. So I think it is super important that the executives themselves are setting the tone and setting the expectation down into the business units to deliver against that. Otherwise, I think there can be this a treadmill of kind of focusing on the here and now and trying to make sure that every dollar of cash gets generated. But at times, what we need to do is balance that against the future developments, the riskier or longer term investment that need to pay off to keep the companies to be viable in the future. James, how do you see the difference between early winners on that trajectory versus the laggards? What makes a difference? Is it the tone from the top? Is it the capital, the money being allocated to this, or what is most important from your perspective to be among the winners on this journey? I think tone from the top is always really important, but actually what a lot of our clients are struggling with is the sort of transmission through the organization. The people at the top, they go to Davos, they go to these big industry meetings, they come away and they think we've got to do something about this. And then what happens in the organization is it hits the sand, the tangleweed or spaghetti of the internal organization. The real test is actually moving into action and making things happen. And as we've talked about, there's so many measurement and methodology complexities here. One could spend the next 10 years 
just designing the perfect measures and assembling all the data that needs to be assembled to make the perfect decision. But what we actually need is action and change and making that happen. And for a bank, that's about getting in and essentially reworking the plumbing of the system. How do we make decisions? What do we look at to make a decision? How do we evaluate a return? And how do we change that? It's really about getting it into action and making things happen. And where's the real resistance in the organization? Is it the employees? Is it the investors? Or is it the operational issues of changing processes in order to get there? What's the piece de résistance, as the French would say? Let me have a go at that, having been in the industrial economy. I actually don't think there is that much resistance from a personal level. So I think if you did a straw poll of your typical employee, they want to be part of the solution. They want to be part of the energy transition. I think there are pressures, as I talked about earlier, that are quarter-on-quarter performance issues. And then I think you've got real and really hard to solve technology challenges and investment requirements to deliver this at scale. Sometimes people look at this and they think, let's just stick up a few more wind farms or roll out solar more substantially. But you can't generate the kind of level of energy heat intensity for the use of industrial applications, or that's not going to be powering the fleets of ships that transport all of our goods around the world in an efficient manner without polluting. So there are many things that need to be solved. And then there are things like hydrogen technologies. How do we make green hydrogen and do it at economic scale? How do we how do we make CCS work so that we can capture carbon and utilize it in industrial process? These things are not economically viable today, let alone scaled to be deployed at world scale, and are probably only economically viable in certain parts of the world. So it's going to take time to do this. So one of my messages would be, don't expect this to happen overnight. But equally, let's be careful not to pull out all the hydrocarbon energy inputs to economies around the world more quickly than we can replace them with the things that we absolutely want to replace them with. I talked to James about threading the needle here between a good orderly transition that makes the transition that is Paris aligned and fast enough, but lifts people out of energy poverty, fuels economies to continue with economic growth, rather than being an awkward step change that breaks economies on the route to trying to solve the climate challenge. So we need to balance all of these things, but do them fast enough in parallel. You talked about the progress that is being made. You talked about the opportunities out there. But when we purely look at the numbers, we're still above the Paris path. What's at stake for business if we collectively can't manage to accelerate this journey? There's obviously the physical dangers that we're all aware of and what happens if the environment continues to change in a way that we don't understand and can't anticipate. And that has risks to all of us and to businesses as well. And there's also the risk for companies that that or fear of that leads to a more disorderly transition and the imposition of policy changes and more radical shifts by government responding to unrest that would potentially have much more challenging impacts on the corporation. So I think there is a danger here and the big picture of failing to act fast enough. I think for individual companies, there's a question of being on the right side of this trend. And I think we're already seeing that reflected in valuation premium in the market. And people who have a clear story around this are being rewarded and attracting capital and interest that helps them grow. And I think those who don't get ahead of it will find it harder to attract people and harder to attract capital. I think James nailed it. It's the, let's not do this too slow, but also let's not do this in a quick knee-jerk fashion that doesn't recognize the nature of the challenges and the fact that this is going to require transition over time. I think also a message might be to not let the perfect become the enemy of the good. Um, So if you take an economy like India, for example, 
there are many people who don't have the plumbing and wiring that we enjoy in Western society. They cook on wood-burning stoves. Where they have got power, it's powered by coal-powered power plants. So when things like gas start to become a potential next pariah in hydrocarbons, as an example, what's the best thing for the world? Is it that India keeps operating as it is with people in energy poverty, polluting through coal and wood-burning stoves? or use gas as a transition fuel until hydrogen technology and infrastructure is there to fully decarbonize, but at least to decarbonize heavily en route to the future that we want to see. And I think therefore we need to take this multi-year view and help educate our stakeholders and bring together financiers and corporates to really understand these challenges in a collective sense. Time to wrap up. I'd like to congratulate the report authors, a fascinating report through Oliver Wyman style, deep analytics, deep impact. I'd like to thank the panelists for a very engaged and lively discussion. And I look forward to hearing more on the topic of climate. Thank you. Thank you for joining the show. We invite you to subscribe so you'll be notified when the next episode goes live.